Have you ever questioned what love really is? Do you ever wonder if you've really experienced true love? Today, we'll talk about different definitions of love, and I'd like to offer some thoughts that might help you feel more empowered in how you experience this whole love thing. Welcome to The Happy Wizard. I'm your host, Dr. Shiva Guide. I'm a board-certified and licensed clinical psychologist, a public speaker, and an educator. In this podcast series, I'll be sharing strategies to help you heal from the past, navigate everyday challenges, and create a much more meaningful life. Hi, I'm Dr. G, and I'm excited to talk to you today about the topic of love. My goal is to help broaden your idea of love, and I hope today's podcast will be inspiring and thought-provoking. Love has been a hot topic since the beginning of time, right? Poets and philosophers have written about it. Playwrights have found creative ways to depict all the different kinds of love that we think exist. And in more recent decades, it seems like science is catching up and trying to define and explain the phenomenon of love. But despite how much we think and write and talk about this love thing, and despite how much research we do on it, there actually doesn't seem to be a consensus on exactly what love is. Like any other intangible construct or you know concept-like thing, the big challenge is that we don't have a way to prove or see it. It's something that we experience, so in some ways it's very subjective. And there's so much diversity in how people define and also how people experience love. So it's really hard to know where the topic starts or ends. So there's a really fun exercise that I've done with my therapy groups. Well, I thought it was fun. And sometimes my patients tell me that that's a little warped. Um, But I ask people to write about what they think love is and how they define it and what their experiences with love have been. There were literally no other instructions given. So it's a completely open-ended assignment with no constrictions. They could think about anything from self-love to love for all the different people around them and also love for things in their lives. They could think about this from a more scientific perspective or through the lens of religion, spirituality, philosophy, or whatever. Totally open-ended. Interestingly, The feedback I got from many of them after a few weeks of discussion about love was that it was a very challenging activity for some of them and very frustrating. In fact, it was so annoying and frustrating for some of my folks that they opted out of the discussion of love. And a few of them said, hey, Doc G, tell me when you're done talking about love and I'll come back to group. I suspect that some of that frustration comes from the fact that there's no consensus. And even if you get a small group of people together and you share ideas, there's no conclusion, right? We don't actually reach this like grand finale point that has a guaranteed, reliable, predictable definition of love. Because our exploration in that activity was exactly that, exploration, There was no ulterior motive, no like aspirational destination or endpoint. So the discussion left us in this like free falling state of ambiguity. Now, okay, as a psychologist, I love that shit, but I cannot say that other people necessarily appreciate it as much as I do, Um, especially people with anxiety. And you know, if you're out there, 
this is how you feel about it. When you have anxiety, you want to control things. You want to have some sense of power or control over your little universe. And in the realm of love, there is none, right? Depending on how you choose to think about it. And here's where things I think get really interesting because there's no unidimensional way to, to view or experience love. There's no right or wrong about it, right? Isn't that awesome? I mean, super cool. So one discussion I remember having a lot when, with people when I was in my 20s um, and just pondering a lot was this idea that love and lust were different things. And then even real love might evolve into a deeper love that you develop over time. In my mind, these were all different things. Truthfully, I can't say that this dilemma is any clearer to me now, you know, sadly, but um, I'm guessing that I'm not alone in constantly wondering and asking myself and other people what love is, obviously, so that I can have more of it in my life. Now, of course, just because we learn more about love, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be better at it. Um, Like I always say, as it relates to behavior, knowledge, information, and insight doesn't really translate directly um, into behavioral change. And, you know, being confident about what we think or how we understand love, it probably doesn't mean that there's a higher probability that we'll have more of it, right? Sadly. Okay, so we've got to start somewhere. So let's start with the biology or the science of love, since it seems a little bit more tangible. So obviously, despite the romantic idea that love exists in the human heart, we know the heart is really just a mechanical organ keeping us alive. Um, The love that leads us to experience all sorts of physiological symptoms, including in the heart, really starts in the head. Of course, because the brain runs all of our other organs. And this is where um, I have to make a quick plug for a couple of different trailblazers in this field. So... I discovered the work of a really incredible scientist and researcher, and actually, to be more specific, she's an anthropologist and a neuroscientist. Um, Her name is Dr. Helen Fisher. And I I stumbled across a book that she wrote in the early 90s. And it's a wonderful book called The Anatomy of Love. She has updated it recently. um, And she's written actually several books since that time to explore love, dating, mating, you know, and all of that, um, from a social, biological, evolutionary, and neurochemical perspectives. She's got a lot of talks on YouTube, Google, TED Talks, you know, you might want to check some of those out. I encourage you to do that if you're nerdy like me and you really enjoy this kind of stuff. Her work is really fascinating. And, you know, in more recent years, she's actually studied the brain through imaging And she's identified different types of love and connected them to different parts of the brain. And what's really interesting is that with each different type of love, we know now that there are different neurochemicals and hormones that play an important role. I really like this personally because it gives us a tangible, explainable place to start. Plus, I'm just nerd, so I like to take advantage of any opportunity to nerd out on you for those of you who might enjoy the science. Also, uh, please keep in mind that I'm really simplifying things to some degree. So, you know, you can always read up on more science online. God only knows there's plenty of information available to everyone in the modern age of technology. Remember, these um, biological and neurochemical phenomena happen in really primitive parts of the brain. Uh, These drives have been with us for, you know, 4 million years. 
um, and since our animal predecessors. You know, what does that mean? It means that we're just hardwired in certain ways, period. Love, but really the chemicals and hormones driving these feelings are one of the most powerful survival processes that we have. So the first type that I want to talk about that we're all pretty aware of, probably because it's really easy to recognize and it smacks you in the face when it happens, it's lust. Or we can refer to it as sex drive. You know, obviously the underlying driving force is evolution because we need to procreate in order to keep people on the planet, right? So the big players in this love are reproductive organs, so the ovaries, the testes, but also a really important structure in our limbic system called the hypothalamus, because that's what turns on the whole system by stimulating the release of estrogen and testosterone. Another type of love that's been identified is what we call attraction, and that seems to actually relate to a different set of neurochemicals, specifically dopamine, that's our happy chemical, and serotonin, most of you have heard of it. Um, it really plays uh, an important role in mood. And then norepinephrine, which is kind of like our energy booster. All of these chemicals contribute to that sort of obsessive, excited, euphoric feeling when we're around someone that we're attracted to. These are the chemicals that are probably responsible for the fact that in romantic love, you know, all of a sudden this one person seems exceedingly more everything, you know, more beautiful, interesting, smart, exciting than all the other people around us. The third and uh, final kind of love that we've identified in this um, more neurochemical way is attachment, which obviously, like it sounds, um, probably we'd assume it takes a little longer to develop, right? At least when it's healthy. Um, and you can think of lust and attraction as falling into the more romantic and sexual domain, but I think attachment is a much broader concept and a type of love that you can extend out to, um, and experience with anyone. And that includes romantic partners, friends, family, children. Attachment is related to oxytocin and vasopressin. You've probably heard about oxytocin. It's that bonding chemical, right? Sometimes it's been called the cuddle hormone, and it's released when you have a baby um, and engage in other kinds of bonding activities with your baby. Um, but what you maybe didn't know was that it's also released during sex, especially after you've had sex with the same person more than a few times. And then vasopressin works alongside oxytocin, but I'm not going to get into the details of that. It's more convoluted and just really getting into the weeds. Another scientist and researcher, a psychologist who's a trailblazer and, I mean, truly world-renowned in his work on love and relationships, and who he and his wife have studied and treated couples for decades, Dr. John and Julie Gottman. Um, they've contributed tons to the field of relationships and love. And they actually take a different perspective on love, uh, focusing on relationships. You know, what makes them last? What's happening when they don't last? They look at other factors. So versus focusing on chemicals and hormones like Dr. Fisher, they identify some primary constructs. Um, or factors that need to be present in order to experience love or what they call, quote, the magic. They've identified three primary factors, trust, commitment, and physiological calm. Um, so that last one might 
uh, sort of raise an eyebrow. Basically, not being in a state of physiological arousal. And again, not the good kind, not the kind that happens uh, when you're feeling sexy, but the, the kind that makes you feel agitated when you're having a fight, flight, freeze response, right? The animal fear response. Commitment is related to loyalty, but betrayal of that commitment can lead to dissolution or falling apart of a relationship. Um, Dr. Gottman and his team came up with a sort of a formula for lasting relationships and predictors of divorce. Um, for example, you know, the impact of how two people communicate verbally and non-verbally with each other, um, especially during conflict. Um, I'm not going to get into the gory details of this again. There's a lot of interesting details, uh, about their research online and they've published many, many books. Maybe some of you right now, uh, you feel like your head's spinning with all these details. I know it gave you a lot of science and maybe it's giving you a headache. Um, and you're not in a relationship with anyone right now. So you're thinking, oh my God, this is too much work, too scary. Fuck love. I don't need it. But why are we talking about love right now? Why does it matter? Why is love important? Well, I mean, it's the basis of friendships and relationships and, you know, research has shown us over and over again that when you have healthy relationships, you're healthier, wealthier, more resilient, more likely to recover from illness, you live longer, and as it turns out, children of healthier couples tend to be more successful too. And this brings us back to what I repeatedly tell the people I work with at Nojum that it's all going to boil down to your story and the stories you tell, period. Now, obviously, I personally am coming from a more scientific and psychological perspective. And um, I'd like to just make a note that the way I like to think about love is just one option of many. Um, but I like to offer this particular option because I believe that it is a lot more empowering in the way that we think about love. It allows us to experience love in a much more powerful way. So, you know, aside from all the research and the science about the brain, the hormones, the neurochemicals, you know, all these primary factors leading to successful marriages and relationships and whatnot, you know, what if we think about this in a much simpler way? What if instead of getting into the weeds and wondering about all the whys, you know, how about we just acknowledge that we like experiencing love and we know what it feels like to love someone and something and we want more of it. So what is love coming from a psychological perspective and how do we have more of it? Well, I mean, if you think about it, when you feel love, you're in a state of happiness, uh, maybe even more than that, like euphoria right? What's causing that is a set of happy thoughts about love. I mean, yes, chemicals, but you're also probably having a set of happy thoughts about love and about that person. So do we have control over thoughts? Yes. The great news is yes. Actually, remember, we get to tell the story. Nobody else has control over that thought processing. We have control over our thought processing. I think a lot of people are under the misconception that loving someone has to do with like how special or different they are. And it's a feeling that we have specifically because of them. To me, this perspective is a little disempowering. And if you really think about it, you know, love is something that starts and ends with you. 
right? You're the one experiencing it, feeling it, uh, identifying yourself as being in love or loving, you know, it really has nothing to do with the other person or entity, right? In fact, we can make a case that it doesn't even require the other quote thing or person to love you back, right? I can say, looking back on my own life, every man I've met and had a relationship with, I loved more than all the men before, you know, was this because they were all inherently different or better than the previous ones? No, not at all. It's really just something that has happened, I believe, because I have grown my own capacity to feel and experience love. I am more capable of loving bigger and better now than ever before. Coming to this realization has been really empowering for me because I choose to believe that I am able to experience love whenever and with whomever I choose. I don't expect love in return, although sure, it's always nice, but I completely own my experience of love. And, and I really love that. So for example, I feel great love when I work with my patients. You know, they may not all love me back, but that's okay because their experience of love is theirs. And my experience of love is mine. I have many happy, loving, compassionate thoughts and stories when I think about my work and just in general being around other people. It might sound silly, you know, me sitting here in my own bubble of love, but I really think this is how it works. So, I mean, think about it. Uh, Think about all the things that you love, you know, chocolate cake. You love it. Does it love you back? Probably not. And in so many ways, but does that detract from your enjoyment and love of it? No, not at all. You still go on loving chocolate cake. This really goes for anything or any activity that you engage in that creates an opportunity for happiness, joy, euphoria, love, whatever words you want to use to describe that magic. And, you know, what these activities or experiences have in common is probably the same set of hormones and neurochemicals that I talked about earlier. I guess uh, my point is that everything starts and ends inside of you. It's all happening on the inside. So I suggest and I offer to you that maybe instead of giving away our power so easily and so mindlessly, maybe we start to take back that control. If you love someone, it's because you made a conscious, intentional choice at some point that you were going to share yourself with that person in that way. You decided probably for any number of reasons that this person is who you will show and share your emotions and love with and to. And this is who you have chosen to be emotionally vulnerable with. So don't ever forget that this is your choice. In a way, you can think of it like a gift that you choose to give someone. Just because they can't reciprocate or at some point they opt out, that doesn't take away in any way from the fact that you still get to experience your love. So again, you know, to use myself as an example, if I meet someone who I want to feel love for, I don't stop myself from feeling my feelings based on what I think they want, love, or need. I don't calculate or strategize. I love the feeling of love. So I allow myself to feel as much and as often as I like. I have no expectations from other people 
And because I am able to truly manage my own thoughts and tell healthy, helpful stories as well, I just let things be what they are. It's okay to love someone who isn't necessarily in the same place and may not have the capacity or be able to love me back or love me back in the same way. I still get to experience what I want and no one else gets to dictate that to me. I am much happier as a person when I approach the world and people around me from a loving, patient, compassionate, kind place. I really want to be Mr. Rogers when I grow up. So I very mindfully and attentively make an effort every day to present in this way and to embody these values that I believe in. Okay, so what's the bottom line? Own your love. Don't credit it to other people. You can choose to give it, and you can also choose to take it away when the situation does not serve you well anymore. You take credit for all of it. And now that you understand that it starts and it ends with you, go out and practice loving more people without any expectations. You know, after all, I mean, you're the one who benefits from all these hormones and chemicals that are made inside of you. And maybe the love that you choose to foster and share with the people around you will spread. And maybe that's how we all make it a happier and healthier and more loving world. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you've learned at least one new thing that you can practice this week. Please feel free to share feedback and submit ideas for future topics at happywizardpodcast at gmail.com. Take care, stay safe and healthy until we meet again.